Children are dismissed back to Praise Factory. If you'd grab your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 10, that's Luke chapter 10. We're we're finished up with our time in the book of Colossians, and we're in that uh, period of the the church calendar where we're leading up to Easter, uh, leading up to Resurrection Sunday um, this this week. Uh, Many of the... uh, of, of the mainline Protestant traditions will celebrate uh, Ash Wednesday, which is uh, marking uh, 40 days until Easter Sunday. And uh, while we don't celebrate uh, Ash Wednesday and hopefully try to not put too much weight on traditions not uh, clearly outlined in Scripture, there's something about taking a period of time prior to the resurrection and focusing on uh, thinking about what the resurrection means, thinking about uh, what it means that, uh, that, that, that we have this event when Jesus is crucified and he gives up his life for us and then that, that he uh, is, is raised by the Father and by the Spirit and what that means to us. It's a good thing to mark off time. And so I thought that, that stepping away from uh, Colossians and then, and then moving towards Easter, that, that we would spend some time thinking about what we have been saved to and then what we're to use our, uh, our new status as believers, as those who've been saved by Christ. What, it, what should we do with this amazing opportunity uh, and so we'll be, we'll be talking about the role of, of love and the role of sharing and how we use our relationships. But I thought this morning we'd start um, in, in Luke chapter 10. And so I'm going to read uh, verses 38 to 42, and then we'll pray and we'll turn to the explanation of, of God's word. So Luke 10, verse 38, it says, Now as they went on their way, this is Jesus and the disciples, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Let's pray. Lord, we come to this passage this morning and we think about what it is that we desire in our hearts when we hear your word and we hear that we're supposed to leave off of sinning. We're to leave uh, sinful behavior behind. We agree because of the conviction that comes from your word. And we hear that we're supposed to walk in newness of life. And we agree because we know that we need a savior, and we know that having been delivered, we're to live in a, in a different way. But Father, as we arrive at, at this passage, when, when we come here, it is uh, somewhat 
mystifying that knowing we're to serve, we find Martha rebuked for her serving, and we find Mary affirmed for her lack of service. Lord, uh, we have a need to sit at your feet and to learn and grow. And we agree. We also have a need. We're called to live in a way that honors you and that serves. And so we pray as we turn to the scriptures that you would help us to gain some clarity here. Lord, it has been said that perfect is the enemy of what's good. And I believe in many cases that is true. And that's probably why people repeat it. It's also been said that good is the enemy of what's best. And there are many things that we can throw ourselves into, many activities which fill up our time and distract us from truly sitting and learning and knowing you. And so, Lord, we we look to you and we ask you to teach us to find a balance when it comes to resting in you and working for you. We're called to walk in good works that you've prepared beforehand, and we're told that we're saved by grace, not because of any work that we've done. Lord, we want balance. Teach us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. A Bible scholar who wrote the, uh, the book, the Urban's Bible Handbook, said it's to be regretted that this passage, this story about Mary and Martha, has become the occasion for endless debates as to the relative merit of Mary and Martha. That's immediately what happens, I think, is that we begin to compare the two of them. Uh, You know, Mary was good and Martha was bad. There are those who stick up for Martha and say, hey, somebody's got to do the work around here. Uh, And and they, uh, they, they celebrate Martha and accuse Mary of laziness. Uh, it's, it's interesting. So the attempt to, to clear away all of the, um, the junk that's built up around the story is, is at times difficult. Jesus' difficult journey had begun. You can hear the weight and the weariness in his voice when he makes the first prediction in Luke 9, 22, when he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and he'll be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and he will be killed. And on the third day, he's going to be raised. He says to the crowd after making this prediction, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Jesus had been involved in ministry for about two and a half years at this point, very public. Uh, His ministry had been well received, and then the attitude toward him began 
to sour, but his daily experience was one of, of getting up and, and teaching and healing and occasionally getting involved in disputes with uh, religious authorities and sometimes with his own disciples. And then he had to manage the disciples who were constantly arguing. He would go to sleep exhausted, rise early in the morning to pray and then work all day. He'd be tired often having a difficult time uh, making opportunities to eat. They would plan where they were going to go the next day and perhaps begin to travel just a bit. And soon after dark, he would be fast asleep. Then they entered the village of Bethany. We're just a, a step away from Jerusalem, not very far. A woman named Martha met them invited Jesus into her house in uh, probably what is a a victorious moment because there were many people probably seeking to offer hospitality. He accepts. Perhaps she runs home to sweep the house, pick things up quickly. You never work quite so fast to straighten your house. You never get quite as much done as you do when guests are coming, right? It's amazing how much work can be packed into that, that little bit of time, just when that, that pressure is added. And so she throws open the front door, welcoming them in, beaming, excited. Uh, this is a good kind of pride, isn't it? Pride that, that your place is well-maintained and you are ready. Villagers from the surrounding area are drawn, have drawn near to the house. Uh, the, the hospitality offered to Jesus would be extended beyond just him and his uh, disciples, uh, prominent people would have likely been invited over. uh, And and other people who were not able to get in would linger around and the rules of hospitality would demand that she feed them, some of them, something as well. Food would quickly be offered to the master and to any guests. Now, because of the way society worked at that time, she likely didn't have all the food immediately Uh, When she invited him, you'd have to run to market and and purchase some things and then run home. And uh, Lazarus was, seems like he was pretty well to do. He was able to afford a tomb uh, when when, uh, he he passes away later uh, in the Gospel of Luke. If you hadn't read that far ahead, I'm sorry I I spoiled it. That will eventually happen to Lazarus. Kidding. Um, But so she would have likely... uh, invited Jesus, and then it would have taken him some time to move through the crowd. And so there's an opportunity for for her or uh, her servants to run to the market and pick things up. She probably would have jotted down a a quick uh, menu. Think about what what they likely would have had on hand. She's going to say, okay, let's make a quick menu. Let's think through all the things that I make that are excellent, that people enjoy, and the ingredients that are likely on hand, and let's go get some things. You can't go and pick up strawberries at the supermarket, you know? It's like whatever's in season is what you've got to work with. And so she might have said, I'm going to make a white bean dip with chutney, fig chutney. I'm going to make some flat bread, like some pita chip crackers to, to dip in there. We'll get some Gethsemane olives and stuff them. Grape leaves stuffed with feta cheese, put together a, a, a spinach salad, bowls of lentil soup, and then we're going to have curried goat. For the, for the main meal, grilled lamb chops with pomegranate juice, Galilee, uh, sautéed Galilean red snapper, roast 
corn beurre blanc as a side. Finish it off, fig and honey, creme brulee. And she's like, perfect, right? She's got it all set. And so Jesus enters into the house and he's shown to the place of honor. This is the teacher. Good hospitality means that that she's going to offer him pride of place. Lazarus, their brother, perhaps seated at his right hand. He is, after all, the founder of the feast. Peter's going to sit at the left hand. No, John, of course, gets there first because, as the Gospels confirm, he is the fastest, right? Um, He can outrace John any day. No, Peter moves John, and as Peter's moving John, Judas slips into the spot on his left, disappointing Peter. So Lazarus, Judas, Jesus in the middle. James and John begin to fume and bicker. Martha drops a plate of white bean dip in front of them and some crackers. She says, here you go, guys, eat up. The main room of the house begins to fill up with people, and so this this suddenly uh, hastily thrown together dinner party is going well. Martha wipes her hands on the kitchen towel and reviews her mental list again. She's finished the dip and the salad. She's almost finished with another batch of stuffed olives and grape leaves. She's got everything working on the, the red snapper and the roasted corn. She'd sent a, service, a servant to the market because she's, you know, she doesn't quite have everything she needs for the curry goat. Lazarus loves that. So um, since they had a little extra in the purse, she could get a little crazy, right? And so she's breaking out some of her mom's recipes here. And the villagers are, are seeing what's being purchased, and they're talking about it. And she just thinks the master is going to be so pleased with this. He'd stop eating for just a second, She'd be moving from kitchen to main room to deliver a dish, and he would say, did you make this? This is wonderful. Everything tastes great. Perhaps he would even say, this is the best meal I've ever eaten. She viewed him as a good Man, he was an amazing teacher. He was turning the world upside down. And in large part, the people loved him. He worked so hard. People would describe the way that he ministered tirelessly. And and they would talk about how he was exhausted at the end of the day. And he hardly had time many days to eat anything in the middle of the day. And so look at him. He's so thin. He needed to look after himself. He needed people to look after him or he would just waste away to nothing. Well, he was going to eat well at her house. She was going to make sure that he didn't leave underfed or anything less than fully satisfied. So as the the later dishes, the trays begin to go out to the kitchen, She's putting the finishing touches on the, the, the wheat salad and she's smelling everything that's, that's going on in the kitchen and she begins to detect something that is unwelcome, a smell that she's not prepared for. Something is burning. And so she, she begins to race around the kitchen and, and uh, the lamb needs attention and, and, and perhaps uh, this, the, the sauce that she was preparing is, is beginning to burn off and, and now the, the red snapper is beginning to scorch. Another smell goes off in her her mind. 
like the silver trumpets that they would sound in the nation of Israel in order to alert the people that they were being attacked back in the days of Moses. Something, something screams alarm to her. There are more and more people coming to eat. She needed to make more flatbread, and now that's burning too. And she glances, she throws a quick glance around the kitchen and realizes that there's too much to do. She's got too little time, and there are, are too few hands in order to accomplish everything that she wants, and, and frustration wells up in her, and she speaks out to her sister and says, Mary, I need you too, and she looks around, and Mary is nowhere to be seen. She realizes no one is there to hear her voice. She's alone. Where is Mary? Her sister is supposed to be helping her. She wipes her hands again. Her eyes scrunch up a little bit and her eyebrows angle and her mouth flattens into a line. And she walks into the main room. The room is, is packed, but it only takes a second for her to spot her sister's dress and hair. And there is Mary, not leaning up against a wall near the kitchen, not stopped for just a second, not just hanging on the words of a, of a, of a, of a particularly powerful sentence. She had no empty or full plates in her hands. Full plates, she thinks. There is the, the tray of, of lentils and some, some salad that she was supposed to deliver to the guests, which has just been set down, and no one is paying attention to the food. They're all looking at Jesus. It's getting cold. It's ruined. Mary had somehow managed to wind and scoot and work her way through the packed room through all these guests who filled their main living space, and she's there, seated, close to Jesus. If Mary were to just reach out, stretch just a little bit, she could touch him. She waited. Perhaps Mary would come to her senses. Perhaps she would smell what Martha was smelling and realize there was work to be done. But she didn't move. She's still not moving. Perhaps Mary's father or Lazarus had explained to her that in times when she was frustrated or angry, she should count to ten. And so that's what she does. One, two, no, forget that. She, she realizes she needs some help here. And so she believes that Jesus would help her. Jesus helps everyone. And so she steps into the crowd, stepping around the, the guests or of trying to avoid their, their plate, right? Looks like everybody's enjoying the grape leaves and the, the olives, at least. Peter's enjoying the bean dip. It'd be kind of nice if he would stop licking his fingers. <laughs> she circles around so she could see Mary's face, because the moment needs to be just right. And so, Lord, she begins twisting her towel in her hands. Do you not care that my sister, right, you know, shift from uh, sympathetic sadness and, and brokenheartedness to appropriate righteous anger as she looks at her sister? My sister has left me to serve all alone. Don't you care? Arms crossed, face 
pouting. Tell her then to help me. Mary and Martha lock eyes. Do we have an angry toss of the head by Martha now? Like, gotcha. Perhaps just a tiny trace of a satisfied, sneaky smile. Or is there just nothing but seething, fuming anger? And everybody in the room, at least anybody who's got any sense of what's going on socially, right? They stop, you know, olive halfway to the mouth, you know, and they look at Martha and they look at Mary and then they all turn and they look at Jesus because none of them want to get involved in the middle of this. Nobody wants to be the first one to say anything. And Jesus says, Martha. Softly, kindly, she turns to him. Perhaps a compliment about the food. Perhaps that's what's, what's coming. The pita chips, at least the ones that he received, were crisp and perfectly seasoned with organic dead sea salt. Martha, he says her name again, and not the way her mother and father would say it when they were trying to get her attention or scold her. Jesus continues, you are anxious and troubled about many things. A wide, so slow sweep of his hand indicating all of the dishes and cups on the table and all of the guests. You are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. I think at this point, probably if there were some women hanging around the room, you know, they would have picked up on the fact that Martha was in crisis, right? The community of women supporting one another, jumping up and running into the kitchen to help out. Perhaps they smelled what was going on. And so Martha turns to go, tears now welling up in her eyes, then turned her back and turned back and looked into the kind eyes of Jesus. He had been kind to her, but I think her spirit was twisting and conflicted within her. Should, should she sit? Would she sit? I believe that this story turns on a single Greek word, uh, a, single, a single word in the text. Up until the publication of the RSV, NIV, and the NASB, the translation reads like this. King James Version, verse 39. She had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. New King James reads this way. She had a sister called Mary who also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. The Holman Christian Standard Bible, a modern translation, reads this way. She had a sister Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. I'm not a Greek scholar. Maybe I'm, uh, you know, I I know a little bit more than some others. But I think the the myth of of lazy Mary and hardworking Martha turns on on this word. Uh, Mary had most likely taken part in the preparations based on this. 
She'd done what was necessary and customary, but then she had sat down. Martha was anxious and troubled and bothered and burdened with many cares. Where Jesus was most likely teaching them, I'm here. I am in your midst, and I'm teaching you that you should have no care, but instead trust in my heavenly Father. It was good that food had been served, and it was good that that Mary and Martha desired to render service to Jesus, but when the word began to be served, all other service should stop. I do think that, that we can look at Jesus' pattern throughout the Gospels, and we can, we can look at the way that he handles controversy and he handles people who are speaking against him or speaking against the truth. He often corrects them quickly. He corrects them with open rebuke. And when he is trying to be gentle, when he is, uh, when he is being compassionate to someone, he will say their name twice. And so we ought to see this scene. There is tremendous gentleness here. He corrects her properly. She's made a fuss in front of the guests. She tries to embarrass her sister in front of the guests. And in front of the guests, Jesus deals with her kindly and highlights the the good choice that Mary has made. I believe Jesus would have rejoiced in simple preparations, but Mary, Martha was focused on honoring Jesus with lavishness. And I think this is the danger. The more elaborate and complex our plans and preparations, the more that we seek to do, the more that we seek to gather attention, the attention of the Lord, and the more that, that, that the that our preparations and our service attracts the attention of other people, the greater the likelihood that our self will take center stage. What was it that motivated Martha? Was it pride? A desire to be recognized? A fear of, of loss of reputation in the community? Was it a craving for the affection or the the, the commendation that would come from Jesus that he would say, you are an amazing cook in whom I am well pleased. Like just that he would drop some title on her that would affirm all that she was. But our relationship with the Lord is not built on what we do, but on what he does. He says to her, one thing is needful, Martha. I think there's a richness in those words. One, one thing is necessary. There's, there's only one thing that's needed here. Martha had prepared much. She desired to prepare many things, while Mary knew that only one thing was necessary. Martha put together many things, and Mary prepared one, and her portion was a good one. Mary's 
preparations alongside of Martha allowed her to sit and to enjoy the bread of life while Martha was bound by her preparations and caged in a prison of her own making. Because of of her desire to impress or her desire to earn praise, she isolated herself and was missing out on the true meal. So in part, I think Jesus is saying to her, thank you for what you've done, Martha. But there really isn't a need for all of this. All of of this might be too much. Bible scholar and and preacher G. Campbell Morgan says this, I can see Martha. I've met her in this life. Those hurrying feet, those swiftly moving fingers, love suddenly suggesting something else to make the welcome more perfect. And so what is necessary is multiplied by two and then by four and then by eight and then by 16. She's a great soul desiring to express love, but when her plans are frustrated, she deflects her anger onto her sister and even onto the Lord. Life has very few real necessities. And if needed, we can do without much on which we presently waste our time. The master does appreciate all that we attempt to do for him. But I believe he would suggest to us that we pay attention to our first need, and that is to sit at his feet. I believe that love for Jesus, love for the Lord, cannot finally express itself in service, or it, it, can't, it can't sum itself up completely in serving the Lord. Service is, is not a, a substitute or, or, or a proper, uh, complete working out of love. Love for the Lord must first take the posture of devotion. In our relationship to Jesus, we can't sustain perpetual giving. We can't sustain endless service of doing many things. We need to sit down to drink in and receive. I think that when Luke included this story, it was not just some kind of political statement to, uh, to, to state that Mary was better, right? You know, and that Martha is forever preserved in the scriptures as uh, a busybody or, you know, an angry sister or less than. Instead, I think Luke views this story as a parable. Bethany and the, the living room as the stage, the two women as players. So which is better? The life of contemplation of the goodness of the Lord or the life of action in his service? Is it better to serve the Lord or to fill our minds with his glory and his goodness? I sympathize with Martha when I read this story because it it seems like many times there are many who sit at the Lord's feet asking to be served 
and those who are working in the kitchen and washing the dishes are few. I personally find washing dishes to be an incredibly tedious chore, and so I, I like a companion. I like that uh, the majority of my children are, are now, you know, either adults or approaching adulthood. That nine is not adulthood. Um, but, but I like the fact that I can say, hey, come and dry these dishes. Because if I wash them, I certainly don't want to dry them, you know? Like, I just, I want some help here. Sometimes it seems like there are many sitting at the Lord's feet asking to be fed and few involved in the preparations and service. Luke 4.8, Jesus says, It is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. But we also see in Acts 17, verse 25, that he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Mark 10.45 says, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Martha makes the mistake of letting her own preparations get in the way of what really mattered. In her frustration, instead of looking to the Lord and hearing his word, she looks side to side and looks at Mary. She shifts from devotion to serving the Lord from whatever motive is in her heart. She shifts from this act of of devotion to indignation. She vents her frustration to the Lord and at her sister, and she embarrasses herself her guests, and opens herself to correction. Even if it's gentle, she's still being corrected. Ephesians 6, 7 says, Serve from a whole heart as if you were serving the Lord, not people. So which is better, to minister or to be ministered to? I think that Considering this story and considering all that we know and considering what we, what we learn from the scriptures, there, there are a few principles that will point the way as we seek to conform our hearts, conform our church culture to the heart of, of God. And so what, here's what I'd like to do. I want to share five principles that have five principles that answer them, okay? Imagine this like, walking up a set of stairs and then walking down another set of stairs, okay? Five ideas. First, what we do, our ministry, our service flows from our being, okay? Ministry flows from being. What we do flows from who we are. What we offer to the Lord, what we seek to to offer in his service flows from our identity. John 15.5 says this, apart from him, we can do nothing. If we don't have the Lord flowing through us, if we don't have his power in us, if there is no true connection to him, then what we do is empty. Our works are dead and empty apart from him, but connected to him, our works have life and purpose and meaning. Ministry, service, flows from our identity. It flows from our being, from who we are. 
That's the first principle. Second one is this. To accomplish anything, grace must flow in. In order to to accomplish anything for the Lord, we must receive grace. We must receive it. Mary knew that she needed to stop doing because something was happening. And so she decided to take time just spending time in the presence of the Lord. She obeyed the Old Testament command to be still and to know that he is God. She listened up and knew that it was time to rest beside quiet waters, which is where the Lord leads us, according to the psalm. Jesus points this out to his disciples in the midst of a a time when they are overworked. In Mark chapter 6, verse 31, when he says to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. To accomplish anything, grace needs to flow in. So if ministry flows from who we are, then we need connection with the Lord. And in order to accomplish things for him, we must receive grace. Okay, that's the second principle. Third principle is this. Who I am is prior to what I do. Who I am, what I am, what I am, uh, what I am focused on, my being comes before my actions. It's very easy to to get worked up in in the commands of Scripture. It's very very easy to to read the scriptures and to hear all kinds of truth about who we are in Christ, but then for those scriptures to be overwhelmed and canceled out by commands, right? We pay more attention at times to to the commands of God and to, to statements that say, you should do this, than statements that say, this is who you are. This is what you must receive. This is what you receive from the Lord. Instead, we immediately say, okay, so I need to do this. And when I do this, I'm okay, right? Right? I'm, I'm good with God if I, am, if I am being obedient. We focus on commands and not on what God says about us. One Bible scholar has said, because God works and has worked, therefore man must and can work. Galatians 5.25 puts the, the, our identity in proper order when it says, since we live by the Spirit, that's what God has done, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. We live by the Spirit, that's what, what He does, that's who we are, and we need to keep in step with the Spirit, that's what we do. Colossians Three three says this, you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Right? That's something that has happened. That's something that God has done. And so and then, then in verse 3, or sorry, verse 5 of Colossians 3, it says, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Okay? So we're, we're, we're stepping we're stepping closer to, this, to this, these central ideas here. Ministry flows from our being, from who we are. Second, in order to accomplish anything, grace needs to be flowing in. And then third, who I am is prior to what I do. Fourth principle, I cannot give away what I do not have. 
I can't give away what I don't have. I want to extend to others. I want to extend peace to them, joy, faith, stability, self-control, kindness. I want to share God's word. I want to be, I want to be viewed as a servant of the Lord, as somebody who God is using. I cannot give it away unless I am receiving it from the Lord and being filled and fueled by him. Listen to what Isaiah 50 verse 4 says. I listened to a message years ago um, by a a pastor um, who I'd never heard of before. The pastor's name is Mike Bullmore. And and, and in the middle of this message, he shares this, what I think is an obscure verse from Isaiah 50, which there's, there's so much packed into this, this verse, so many, so many different ideas and, and thoughts that are useful. But this is what, this is what he says in, in, in reference to what we're talking about. Hear, hear what he says, Isaiah 50, verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning, he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord's given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Man, that's being used by the Lord, right? Somebody's troubled. Somebody's struggling. Somebody has a need. And to be able to to use my words to sustain them and encourage them in the midst of their, their weariness. Oh, that's the desire of, of service, right? Of being, of being used by God to accomplish something. But look at what it says here. The Lord has given me that tongue. I receive grace from him. It's, it's, not, it's not what I'm, what I'm doing that's the focus initially in the verse what, what Isaiah is saying that God has given me this tongue and I can sustain people because he's given it to me. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear. Hearing, connection, receiving grace comes before teaching. That's important. It's not like, yeah, 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 let's get on with, you know, let's move on from hearing and let's get to the good stuff. Like, how do I do that? How do I, how do I get the tongue of those who, who have been taught the word so that I can teach others? Like, let's get, give me the principle. That is the principle. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Since what I do needs to flow from who I am, in order to accomplish anything, grace needs to flow in. And because who I am is, is prior to, to acting, and because I can't give away what I don't have, this is the, the key idea. We're almost to the top of the set of stairs here. I said five, I meant six, I'm sorry. I can't count. I make it my goal, my primary responsibility is to abide in God's goodness and his love. My focus toward myself, my focus on me and, and on, on, on my own, my, my, my whole 
view of myself needs to be this. I need to grow in grace. I need to be focused on the Lord and be growing in grace. I need to accept and abide in the unfailing, never-ending, steadfast, free-flowing, undeserved, foreverlasting, incomparable, lavish love of God. That needs to be my goal. I need to receive. I need to be focused on receiving from the Lord. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. The command in the verse here is to see what kind of love he's given to us. Look, right? What does John say to his disciples when they see Jesus approaching? He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The focus there is on beholding. Ephesians 2.4, which, which I think of all scriptures is really the center of what I think and believe about the scriptures. This is where I drive my, my nail in terms of, okay, this is what I'm, what I'm focused on, where, where I always come back to this place when I need to start over again, when God wakes me up from spiritual fog, when I think, where do I start in talking to this person and showing them what's most important about the scriptures? It says this, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. Christ. It should be my focus to abide by going to the secret place, the, the fortress of, of solitude, scripture, prayer, connecting with supportive people around me. I ought to, I ought to, to focus on who God is and his love for me and what he does for me. Why? We put it on the front of our bulletin. We exist to know Jesus Christ. That's not just like clever branding, right? It's not just a marketing phrase. It's there to know him because that is our focus. Philippians 3.8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. There's no, there's no focus on service there. Paul says, I throw everything else away in focus of knowing who Jesus is. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. My focus isn't on doing and being good in order to be declared good by God. That's not my focus, Paul says. I focus on having a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the center of what Paul believes. And this, I believe, is the center of what the New Testament teaches about everything related to our relationship with God. It comes down to the heart's cry that says, Oh, that I would know him. To know him. So then we say, oh, somebody's got to get stuff done, right? Eventually got to get around doing something. Well, well yes, 
But all of this needs to come first, or all of our doing is in vain. All of our acting is in vain. Thankfully, on the bulletin cover, we put the second half. We exist to know him and to make him known. Jesus called us to himself, but he gave us a great commission. Isaiah, in addition addition to, to talking about depending on the Lord, he also commands that we're to speak regarding the Lord. Isaiah 12, 5, sing praises to the Lord, for he has done gloriously. Let this be made known in all the earth. John 17, 26, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus praise to the Lord that, that as he had made it known, made known their relationship, made known the love of God, made known the grace of God, that, that his disciples, knowing the love of God and abiding in him, would in turn make God's love known to others, that they would also share. And so because I realize that everything flows from focusing on God's love for me, I then understand that it is my focus and my burden to make God's love known to others. What ought our goal to be? Our goal ought to be to know and to abide in God's love. But then our actions ought to be focused on obeying and expressing God's self-giving, self-denying, other-centered, fulfilling, sacrificial love. I obey God from a place of understanding what he has done for me. And therefore, I express words of encouragement. I extend grace. I offer forgiveness and I pursue it as well in being a peacemaker. And I seek to build community. John talks about this in 1 John 3.18, where he says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk. Let's not just talk about what ought to be, but instead let's express it in deed and in truth. If I cannot give away what I do not have when I am given it by the Lord, I must give away what I have. When we receive from him, we should, instead of keeping it to ourselves, we should express it. Jeremiah 23, 29 speaks of God's word. God says, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Jeremiah says this, if I say I will not mention him or speak any more in the Lord's name, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I am weary with holding it in, and I cannot. When we truly receive something, when we receive something true from the Lord, we ought to express it. Not not in the private place of our own heart and limit it there. We ought to live it out in our experience and relationships with others. We, we express it. Once we receive something from the Lord, we, we let it flow out. What I do should flow from who I am. The scriptures say that when we put our faith and trust in the Lord and we receive his righteousness and the spirit comes to dwell in us, that means that God lives in us. 
If God is in me, that means the spirit is in me. Jesus is in me. And as I abide in him and I'm filled up with him, it pours out and goes wherever the word needs to go. 2 Corinthians 5.20 doesn't just apply to the Apostle Paul. It doesn't just apply to pastors or missionaries. It applies to every Christian. Paul says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Grace is meant to be received. It's meant to be uh, absorbed and enjoyed and experienced, but it's also meant to flow through. We covered Colossians 4, 6. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. The words that flow from our mouth ought to bring grace, ought to create more grace. We've received grace. We ought to express grace. John 7.37, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Grace is not meant to stop with us. It's meant to flow through. Final principle is this. What I am determines what I'm able to do. What I am determines what I'm able to do. In the moment, Mary chooses the right portion. She sees the opportunity to abide and to absorb and to learn and to experience, and she takes it. Mary focuses on much preparation. When Mary dumps the perfume, she will be accused by uh, the disciples of waste. They're going to say, this could have been given to the poor. Work could have been done. But in her heart, she says, I worshiped. She's going to say, I did what was right at the time, and I lavished love upon God. And Jesus says that won't be taken from her. She would have many opportunities in the future to obey the second commandment and love her fellow man, but only a few to love the Lord, her God, in person. And so as we, as we think about these things, we need to understand maybe the, the, the reason that we feel burdened by cares and anxieties and a, and a desire to obey perfectly at times, and there's fear and anxiety concerning whether or not we're right with the Lord, maybe the reason for that, all of that focus on doing and service is because we're not spending time at his feet, hearing and learning and, 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 and just knowing who we are. Psalm 86, 11, I think is a good place to close up this morning. Where the psalmist says, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. As, as we seek through the, to, to identify areas that are out of balance, we're going to choose either to sit at his feet or, or to serve others. I would, I would argue this, focus on sitting at his feet in order to serve others. Focus on, on beginning with our relationship and your relationship with the Lord and then on your service of other people. Flow from the place of receiving and then giving. If we thirst, we come to him and we receive, we drink 
John 7 says, so that out of our heart can flow rivers of living water. William Carey gets it right, I believe, when he says, expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Perhaps we could correct it by saying, expect great things from God, then attempt great things for him. Our knowing God is the fuel of making him known. Our love for God, our receiving love for him, ought to be the fuel of our love towards others. I pray that this would be a a good starting point for us as we think about what Jesus has done for us in giving over himself on the cross, commissioning us, sending us out into a world that needs his grace. May we sit at his feet and learn who we are so that we can serve him the way that he's called us to. Let's pray as we close. Father, thank you for the opportunity to hear your word. I pray that, 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 we, would, that we would learn to sit and to receive and then to move into action. Lord, to hear what you have to say and then to obey it. To, to first focus on who we are in you and then on action. To, to realize that we need to receive grace from you and then give it away. Father, I pray that we would not be caught in the many traps that, that say that we need to earn your favor. You give it freely. I pray that you would build us up in this truth that we might share your amazing grace with others. Father, may we experience it. May we know your love that we may share it with those who need it. Father, help us to keep this in balance, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.